hello, and welcome to Deep Impact, a proud member of the Doof Network, where we dive deep into Wildbo's most inhuman work five years on. Coming up next is Elliot Diebold. And that was Ruben Morehouse. That's me. And we are back to talk about Execution 13.X, an interlude chapter, which begins with our point of view ruminating on what has just happened with Sandra in the middle of this street. And we uh, fairly quickly realise that our point of view this chapter is Pordrick. I, I love how this opens with Pordrick establishing a more symbolic connection to the events. Like he, he talks about mm. how he doesn't like time and, and dates. Um, and like this just... It's one of those Wilboisms where when when he's analysing a completely foreign point of view, he, he'll establish something like this and you're just like, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, like, fairy have always kind of been the most, I, I don't know, wordy others, the most English major of the others. Um, but their whole thing is sort of manipulating symbols, symbols and, and reality. And, and so, like, of course, the way they view the world is is through mostly, like, symbols and, and you know, the meaning of a memory rather than like the time allocated to it. Yeah. Yeah. They seem to be very um, close to how I would see spirits kind of seeing the world, which is interesting. I'm not sure how to interpret that, but they're very like, they're all about meaning and metaphor. And they're the main way that I think we kind of see what it looks like for spirits to interpret things. Yeah. I, I, I agree. I mean, obviously we've got Corviday who's, who's even closer. True. Um, I, I viewed them, like, I think I talked before how, like, I, I had sort of come up with the theory that their origins might be as the embodiment of mistruths mm. of, of practitioners. And, like, interesting. I, I, I still think that kind of fits. And, and to me, that fits with this idea. It, it, they're sort of the embodiment of this whole idea of, like, skirting truth and, and, and meaning and stuff. Like, skirting truth through meaning. Like, they're all about understanding the ins and outs and subtlety of the ways of the world and yeah and so like of course you know they put more emphasis on what things mean rather than what they are yeah i i, I think one strong theme about fairies is they're very much about you know using beauty to distract or cover up the uh hideous hideous ugliness underneath yeah they're, um, they're, they're like they feel kind of like deception incarnate to me yeah and then that you can apply to their words like very beautiful flowery language to disguise the actual half truths <laughs> yeah. and lies that are in there. Or even um, third truths as, as Podrick <laughs> is about to get into. I love uh, the, the style, the sheer style that oozes out throughout this interlude. Like <laughs> uh, I, I, I put out this line that I really just fucking loved, but of course all of Podrick's lines are as uh, lofty and ridiculous and beautiful as this. Yeah. Um, he says, I cannot, of course, lie, but I do tell half-truths, and a half-truth could be said to be half a lie. <laughs> I just love that. Like, it's such a beautiful way of expressing the sentiment that he's trying to express. Yeah, it's all this sort of poetry prose. Like, um, it, it reminded me of the letter he wrote Mags in Signature. Like, I think this is a testament to how well uh, Walbo captures voice. Like, this mm. just instantly took me back to that letter he wrote to Mags. The way he kind of flows and meanders to his point, being really clever, but also giving you the impression he thinks he's even cleverer than he's being. Um, it's never just like, I promise I'm going to leave, and I, and I kind of do. It's like three paragraphs about explaining the ins and outs of, of how why what he's doing is true, but not in the spirit of things. It's... Um, <laughs> It's it, I, the word lofty that you used before is so perfect for it. He's just um, 
kind of carrying on and it's it's very fun to read yeah he's he's very um uh self-obsessed and maybe lofty isn't the right (laughs) word maybe it's like masturbatory in the way he talks because that is kind of what it is right yeah there's there's definitely a masturbatory aspect to uh his his personal view of himself absolutely um i think this is the first wabo interlude that i've read that doesn't make me feel any sympathy for the (laughs) (laughs) for the character um the closest that it gets is when he says this he says our lady duchamp did not truly know the punishments but who can without experiencing them which kind of hints at the horrifying world that he's a part of but also he's just so evil you just can't feel any sympathy towards him yeah well and i think part of that is because he immediately follows up that that one idea that makes you maybe feel sympathy for him with she thought to blackmail me and made three mistakes the first was simple I want the court to come looking. What fun! And it's just, he, he sort of is like, "Yes, they're very, very terrible." Yeah, he's but just I'm a psychopath. so insane like, that like, yeah. I'm all for it. Um, and and I mean, you know, fairy to me feel like one of those things where I I hate I hate them and I hate everything they they stand for, kind of. But on on an individual level, it's like you don't you don't hate a fairy for what they are because it, it kind of feels like that's just what they are. Like this, mm. they're put into this web that kind of seems inescapable and they they're a product of of where they're from but you know we just had a whole arc dedicated to to killing people who are you know bad people so yes. it's kinda, it kind of feels like Pordrick would be more than acceptable on that list yeah Pordrick is definitely a monster and deserves to die i mean this chapter <laughs> really solidifies that um he kind of is set up as bad even for a fair is is really yeah, the impression i've walked away from this this is what with. i'm thinking like i wonder how because obviously you know, Keller and, and Esselt are insane, but they're not, they don't seem to the same level of kind of Machiavellian that, that Portrick is. And then I well, think- Well, it's a different it, kind of same. Like, Keller's, Keller's like a famous torturer, right? So it's like, yeah. you know, I don't think he's the kind of guy you go down to the pub with, but um, Portrick's evilness definitely, you're right, takes on this more Machiavellian uh, spin. And then, you know, I want to compare them to like, Latita, right? Joanna's familiar. And obviously, we learn that well. there's a little bit more to her <laughs> than we think uh, throughout this chapter. Um, but even she doesn't seem as... Like, she seems like she's a, on a different level to to the others. Maybe it is just because she's a familiar, and that means that she has to be reined in a bit. Yeah, well, you get a bit of human energy as part of the deal, right? Maybe that mm. um, balances them out. I mean, also... You know, you got to remember, Pordrig, Esalt, and Keller were were banished yeah. from the fairy, so they they are kind of the worst of the worst in that way. <sighs> yeah. Um. So yeah, I don't know, it, but it's it's like it's interesting how uh, on the one hand I am kind of like, well, it's hard to blame the a, a fairy too much for being shit because it kind of seems like that's just intrinsically what they are. But then at yeah. the same time, I read Pordrig scene, it's like, eh, he's terrible and probably deserves to be stopped yep. in any way possible. Um. Yeah. And it, you know what it makes me think? Goblins are so great, and fairies are the worst. <laughs> and in, in this conflict, I support goblins 100%. Mm, I don't feel the need to pick a side. I'm, I'm <laughs> no, going to be on pick the... No, fairies I'm or on, goblins? I'm on the let them fight team. All I reckon right. they can just work themselves uh, to the bone. All um, right. So the other thing I wanted to quickly pull out from this opening bit is... Uh, Podrick sort of explains why he's writing this stuff down, because this is a gathered pages uh, interlude. And, I mean, of course, it's all kind of, he doesn't just say what he means. He 
he talks around it um, because that's his whole thing. But my understanding is he's keeping the journal so that in the future he could, say, alter his memories or or just kind of forget them. Mm. I don't know how it quite works with fairies, like whether they glamour their own memories or whatever. And then this is like the source of truth he can come back to. Yeah, that seems right to me. Um, it seems, though, he really gets deep when he's playing a role, you know, so he he needs that kind of anchor to pull him back to what, wait, what yeah. is actually the truth? I like that because we obviously, you know, we've heard about the, the fairies at the start of the book who had uh, convinced themselves that they were vampires yes. uh, from Twilight. Yeah. So you're right, maybe it's it's partially to help ground him. But I, I know the way he phrases, I almost get the impression that he also would intentionally let himself forget things so yeah. that, like, he can't reveal the information and then he can come back here and, and relearn them. Yeah, I mean, it's probably a pretty good strategy to, if you know you're going to yeah. talk to somebody, to intentionally forget the truth of what they might ask you about so that you don't have to lie about it and then just come back and remind yourself later. Yeah, but it really, I mean, that puts you in the frame of mind of how he's acting if if he's kind of doing this constantly. Yeah. Um, like, you know, they're just the, the layers that he must be in to, to need to do this constantly. Yeah, definitely. Um, so Pordrig, kind of uh, true to his word to Blake, leaves until this situation is resolved by basically walking around the block. And uh, he comes back and he uh, adopts a role, uh, Joanna Duchamp. How is this not leaving? Like, I told Blake he needed to be more specific, and this is an example of why. And I love how Pordrig, after this kind of feigns leaving for like half the chapter, yeah. Um, like it's just he's such a shit, and so is Karma. <laughs> yep. Okay, just throw that one in there while you're <laughs> taking shots. Um, I, I'm interested. I, I kind of I was trying to think back to my reaction to him adopting Joanna's, you know, form here, and and tried to remember because obviously we see how insidious it is at the end of this chapter. But yeah, I was trying to remember how whether that sunk in for me on before we got there. And I, I don't think it did. I think I remember no. thinking it was odd that Latita had, didn't notice that he was a fairy. It didn't occur to me that she was in on it because I, I think that would have had implications of like, well, wait, how long has she been in on this for? <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I, I guess it's the kind of thing where if you really think about it, mid-chapter, holes start to form, but then you're kind of just carried along until it's revealed to you anyway. I um I was definitely working on the assumption that Latita was in on it. I think Pordrick has a line fairly early on, just before she's introduced, about how uh, everyone underestimated his winning personality, um, mm. which just seemed to be a recurring theme for him. Um, yeah. He gets to play people a lot. So I actually assumed he'd kind of won Latita over and, and she was in on it. Um, and, and you know, because uh, Assault and Keller take the forms of another Baham and, and Duchamp. So I yeah. was kind of like, oh, okay, so... This is just something they maybe do from time to time is impersonate family members who aren't around. Um, yeah. And Latita's in on it. Yeah, fair enough. Makes makes sense. Um, so the other thing that I like about this part of the chapter is uh, Portrick really pays attention to body language a lot, so mm. much so that he, he is able to manipulate his own body language to, to give subtle cues to people. So he basically uh, suggests that he's anxious in order to get reassured by Aunt Marjorie to kind of um, get her to do what he wants. Like, he's very adept <laughs> at exactly manipulating people exactly how he wants them, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, he somehow gets her to push him away in the way that he wants, 
Yeah. Um, and I mean, and you're right. Like so much of the focus of this chapter is on how Pordrig is manipulating everything about his body and voice and also how everyone else is doing. Like he, he this ability extends not just for his ability to manipulate others, but to read everyone. Yeah. Um, like there's a great bit where he's he's sort of hiding in the shadows about like a uh, hundred meters away from uh, the Duchamps, and he he doesn't have like any of the goblin powers where you know they had like ideas of where people's gazes were. He doesn't talk about it in terms of that. At least it's all he's studying their pupils from so far away, and like it's all it's all in their body language and their posture and yeah. everything. How how he's tracking them, like it's so focused on reading everyone. Yeah, um, you said it was about 100 paces away, but it's not, it's exactly 97, because he knows <laughs> that. He he knows. True. He moved exactly 97 strides away. Um, <sighs> creepy. <laughs> yeah, um, and I mean, obviously, it, it ends up being great as well, because then we get tons of insights into the rest of the characters he's interacting with. Yeah. Um, because he can sort of read them so well, and like, you know, I assume most of these reads are more or less spot on. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, it seems like it. He actually, I think this chapter really emphasizes, like, we kind of got this sense a bit from the whole Maggie situation, but Podrick is so, like, he's, he's, he seems Corviday levels of making, manipulating people with that level of expertise. Like, it's kind of way far beyond what I thought it was. Yes, I knew he was very, very good, but I don't think I appreciated how very, very good, if yeah. that makes sense. Just how many plots he actually has at one time. Yeah, and I mean, you know, we, we've heard about this before, like how there are so many layers upon layers to fairy plans, and it, this chapter really gives you an insight into how true that seems to be. Yeah. Um so he basically is just now Joanna uh, slowly being pulled away by Aunt Marjorie as as he <laughs> watches the aftermath of this scene in the middle of the street. The Duchamp family basically completely starts to fall apart um, before his eyes. Uh, just quickly, before we get into that, can we talk about how Ev takes the form of a Bahame whose name is, um, I, I, I realize I don't quite know how to pronounce this, Ar- Aristexinus? Yeah. Um, like, fucking hell, Bahames. Yeah, there's a fun game that could be played here, which is, um, is this the name of a Bahame child or one of the characters from the Kingdom Hearts Organization 13? <laughs> <laughs> like, that's the level of ridiculously stupid names that we're playing with here. Okay, I'm gonna, um, I'm gonna cut this out, but uh, lock that in for... <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, like, I mean, I almost want to do a monster corner that's just all the Bahame names we know and, like, where they've come from, because we know they love, like, their old names, and obviously this is, like, an old Greek name, and it's just... I want to go through and just see where all these stupid-ass names are coming from. Yeah, they there must be some, like, mythology that these are pulling from. Like, it must just be, like, different spirits related to time over the years and stuff like that. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think it'd be fun to, to do a deep dive on it. Maybe we'll try and do it uh, sometime soon. Yeah. Um... Uh... Yes, so Podrick is basically relishing in the Duchamp family falling apart, right? <laughs> and it kind of made me think, I also am quite enjoying this. Like, Podrick is is a really fun narrator to help you understand all the political interplay going on here. And it actually makes it more fun to watch this all happen. And it kind of made me feel guilty that I was loving <laughs> drama as much as Podrick does. I mean, that's the whole thing about the fairy in this story, is I'm always like, God, they're horrible, but I fucking love it. 
Yeah, and... I love that they exist, but I hate, like, I want them dead. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's great to see them in a story. I'm glad they're not real. And, um, like, getting one's perspective, you're right. Like, the, the bit where he just, he's describing how Sandra's fallen or something, and he, there's just a paragraph that's just delicious. Yeah. Fantastic. And I was just like, I, you're right. I felt awful for how much that spoke to me. I was just like, God, isn't it poetry? Like, <laughs> you get me. Ooh, creepy. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so basically what Podrick points out to us here is Sandra seems to be falling on her sword here. Basically, she accepts that there's no way for her to salvage control of the Duchamp family. And so she's going to let people kind of hate her for it so that the next, you know, matriarch of the Duchamp family can have a chance at pulling shit back together. Um, yeah, basically, if she just gave up, then the next person would basically cop all the bad feelings. If she kind of lets everyone get it out in her direction, then the next person will have better standing because it'll be like, you know, they're they're stepping up to replace a fallen leader rather than yeah. someone who just abdicated. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it's sad. Like, mm. I know I should hate Sandra because she consistently <laughs> makes ethically bad decisions, but she, it's just kind of, pitiful right i don't know Mm. no i agree i i keep trying to make myself hate sandra and i just can't do it i mean i guess we're just speaking about like the fairies and obviously they're associated with the duchamps so maybe there's a little bit of overlap there Mm. but it's just yeah i keep wanting to be like sandra's a monster and i hate her but seeing this sort of happen to her i'm like oh you know she's she's trying so hard and there's a sort of nobility to her despite the fact she's always pointing it in the wrong direction yeah um i don't know yeah yeah i don't know there's also a bit, like, I just, I just quickly want to mention, uh, Podrig talks about how he kind of has to let, um, I think it's Marjorie, uh, the, the auntie, drag him away, but he also kind of has to resist, uh, and he, he sort of talks about, you know, oh, it's, it's kind of a silly way to bend the rules, but, you know, fairy gotta do what fairy gotta do, is, <laughs> is basically, um, uh, what he says, and he talks about how it's this sort of self-imposed rules, rule that fairy will always just try to fuck with the system. Yeah. Um, and it just, it just made me think of Blake, this line, um, you know, obviously yeah. he's all about kind of f- fucking the system, yeah. um, more directly than them, but, you know, fairy just kind of seemed to be this, a little bit of a chaotic force, you know, it's not unlike Blake, I think, you know, I, I always try to tie the interludes a bit to, to Blake, and I think, I think maybe there are some comparisons or, um, you know, some antitheses between these two. Mm. Yeah, interesting. I, I think you're right that fairies seem to be very chaotic. Like, there's a few lines in here where it seems like Podrick is, says things to the effect of, oh, I didn't expect this to go this way, but now that it does, I'm going to start another plot about it, you know? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, exactly. And it definitely gives me the vibe of, Similar to what Blake did at the start, or earlier on in this chapter, where he basically just created chaos to try and give himself opportunity to do the things that he wanted to do. That's basically what Podrick does this chapter and, and does throughout his life, right? Yeah, yeah. No, you're right. So um, I think there's some good overlap there. Yeah, uh, you know, it doesn't really say great things about Blake. <laughs> no. Um, um, at least he's uh, kind of putting it to good use, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> better than portrait yeah i guess yeah true um so <laughs> so sandra kind of is fighting to keep the family uh, at least under control um and there's a bit of a fight breaking out before she kind of shuts it down it's the goblin king who kind of has become seemingly the de facto leader of the husbands now 
Uh, and yeah. they almost fight before Sandra kind of quickly and deftly has Hilda grab the Goblin King's head, prepping to squish him and kill him. Um, but instead, she just lets him go. Yeah. Um, and I mean, you know, she does pretty well here. Even Podrig, in his own way, kind of gives her some respect. Yeah. He, he comments a few times how he is catching some of the great ways that she is trying to make the best of this situation. Um that nobody else seems to be catching, right? And again, yeah, mm. it's like, it, it really helps. Like, I kind of wish we had Pordrick's POV narrating more parts of the story where you don't really <laughs> understand the politics behind what's going on, right? Um, yeah. It's quite useful to know. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, you're right. It is it is very useful because it just kind of lets us instantly understand a bunch of stuff we might not normally. Yeah. Um and so Sandra seems to have shut down the dispute. She's bought some time to get things back in order, so that's nice. And the uh children fairies are kind of shoved off by Aunt Marjorie to go off to their home. That's right. So Blake's plan was a complete success and uh that's the end of this chapter. Yep. Uh no. know, let's find out how the Duchamps are used next. Uh Yep, and no never mind. Corvidet <laughs> comes back and uh <laughs> <laughs> Again, he's basically a fairy, right? He's got three plots in plan at once, and one little plot that he does here is just take a gun and pick it up and put it over there. And it happens it, it happens and it doesn't come into effect for maybe like four or five paragraphs, and you're kinda like, okay, there's just this Chekhov's gun right here. What's <laughs> gonna happen with it? Um and we'll find out in a moment. But as he does this, the fairy Podrick notices the rest of the fairy looking at Corvidé with sheer admiration, which is so <laughs> horrifying. Yeah, I, I think this is my favourite part of the chapter, is just this sets Corvidé up as so Machiavellian yeah. and horrifying. Like, the idea that these sick fuckers are like, oh my god, he's incredible. Yeah. They're just like, oh god, what's he doing? Um, it, set, it builds Corvidé up so highly. Um... Yeah, I, I don't like. I just love this as a moment. Just like seeing the fairy admire someone, just immediately raises the bar of what they're doing astronomically. Yeah, it's quite terrifying. <laughs> um, um, although yeah. there is the there is this funny bit. I mean, we, we're mostly talking about how on point Pordry is. There's one bit where he sort of says, "Oh wow, uh, you know, Corvidae must have been studying Blake's plan for ages to." Um, know that this would fuck it up so royally, and it's like, okay, Podrick Blake has not had this plan for very long. Like, yeah, I, I I do believe that Corvidae has nailed what Blake's plan was and is sabotaging it perfectly. Like I agree with that, but just the way Podrick phrased this kind of gave me the impression that he's like, mm, you know, he's he's known what Blake's plan was all along, and it's like he can't have because Blake didn't know what Blake's plan yeah. was for very long. Yeah. Um, but apart from that, like Podrick does seem to be on point this chapter. I think Corvidae saw the best possible outcome from Blake's plan, whereas Blake just kind of accidentally stumbled into it. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I agree. I think Corvidae arrived on the scene probably towards the end, just before Blake left, saw what Blake was doing, and was like, oh, I can fuck this up. Yep. Good work, Corvidae. Um, It successfully fucks up whatever Blake was planning, or not planning, because uh, this gun finds its way into somebody's hands that it shouldn't, and in order to prevent someone firing the gun, a fight breaks out, and then the gun changes hands, and it, it just goes bad pretty quickly. Um, yeah, it turns out into the all-out war, Sandra just managed to stop it from being. Yes, and it basically shatters the rest of the Duchamp family, right? Um, doesn't kill them, but it well, just 
well, some, but it, it really <laughs> just falls apart. Um, and uh, one of, I think, the more important things that happens here is Penny Duchamp, uh, Sandra asks her to get the kids out of here, a reasonable request, and Penny spits on her before kind of taking the rest of the junior council away back to the Duchamp house to, to regroup. Um, and Sandra is left here alone. It's a great final image of just like as as Paul Drug and Co leave the scene, just this idea of Sandra just standing alone in the middle of this fight. Like you, yeah. I mean, we we talked a lot last chapter about how we got vibes that the Duchamps were over. Yeah, but there's no there's no ambiguity here. This this we we end this scene on Sandra standing alone in the middle of this fight, and you're like, okay, like the Duchamps aren't just gone now; they're gone. Yeah, they're proper gone. Um, yeah, Blake seemed to have them. I mean, it it kind of was like weakened. You're not going to be in power, but maybe you can help if we band together against whoever Johannes or whoever the bigger threat might be. Yeah, um, I mean, Pudrick talks about it. Blake managed to find the perfect balance of. They're no longer contenders for uh, the the lordship, but they're still going to be very useful assets to stop the other candidates. Yes. Um, and Corvidae just fucked, fucked that up. Went and fucked that right up. Um, yeah. <sighs> so that's it for Sandra. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, man, Penny spitting on her face. Like, that's powerful stuff. I was like, that gave me chills, right? Like, it, it seems now... Uh, I mean, you know, we we saw a lot, obviously, Penny basically towing the family line, and it seems that all of Blake's efforts have effectively severed the junior council from the senior Duchamps. Yeah, Penny has always kind of been defined as the one who was towing the family line the most, so seeing her spit on Sandra is big. She's also the one who got spat out by Blake in Arc 2, right? Like, I, I don't know if I'm overreaching there, but that feels like a little bit of mirroring or something. Um, yeah, it's gone full circle. We're waiting for. I'm waiting for the big spit three beat. Um, <laughs> spit beat. Spit you beat won't believe what's going to happen when the third <laughs> spit comes out. Um, yeah. Uh, no, but like, I don't. I don't know. It, it just reminded me of that, and I don't know if that's fair, but it. It. it you know, it, it harkened back to that whole thing where it was sort of like that symbolized that Blake just wasn't going to get like any good relationship with Penny, and we see yeah the closing of Sandra and Penny's relationship right here. Yeah, um, which obviously sets up that Penny is uh, doing what Blake wants her to now. <laughs> I mean, she, she doesn't think of it that way, but this is what Blake wanted, right? That's true. Um, so the uh, the junior council kind of reconvenes uh, back, well, you know, not all in one place, but over uh, a kind of uh, demon-esque uh, telephone call. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's very Seasons 1 to 3 of Supernatural. That's exactly the, what the I had in things. my mind. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, magical Skype, basically. Yeah. Um, and, okay, there's this beat where Penny says, so all the Duchamp women are obviously pretty distraught by this, and Penny looks around at these, you know, crying, sad Duchamp women and says, chin up, girls, Penelope said, and I'm going to read this out. Almost as one, the collected Duchamp girls fixed their expressions, squared shoulders, and wiped tears from their faces. Across the room, Chloe Duchamp crossed one leg over the other and folded her hands in her lap. This is like full-on Stepford Wives, right? Yeah, um, I actually really like this as, you know, the Duchamp family has fallen apart, but but these girls are still Duchamps, like, and... Yeah, yeah. It kind of gave me skeevy vibes of, like, um... Well, yes, Sandra's done with, 
but now Penny is just kind of taking that role for the junior council. Yeah, I, I guess I, I kind of viewed it more positively. I, I saw it as, you know, one thing these girls have been trained to do is persevere. Um, and, and that's kind of what we're seeing now is like one of the few good aspects of uh, the way they were raised is that at least they're good at pushing on. Um, yeah, okay. And but this is a this is a time where that is a good thing. Um, I, I guess I don't know. Like it, 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 I, I, I see it as this great way of sort of saying, you know, the Duchamp family's gone, but these girls are still Duchamps. They still can steal themselves and kind of continue to push forward. And maybe that's not the worst thing in the world. Yeah, um, we'll see. Um, so they're on this uh, call, and Alastair basically responds to the events of the night by saying that he wants to keep the junior council going. He's invested in its success, even though the Duchamps are not actually uh, uh, in a position to make a bid for lordship, he still wants to include them and keep this as a successful council, but he also wants the Thorburns in it. I mean, look, part of me is like, oh, you know, go Alistair. Like, I was like, you know, he wants to keep this deal, which was mostly a pretty good thing. I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I was like, well, I mean, of course it's easy for him to to do that. Like, he's going to be the one in charge. Like, because, you know, the the winners at the moment, well, the the two people in contention for the lordship now really are Alistair Mm -hmm. and Johannes. And everyone hates Johannes. So it's basically Alistair can take this mantle because he's kind of a given to to make it. And so yeah. basically all he's really doing here is like, hey, just join team Alistair. <laughs> um yeah. it's not it's not as altruistic as he makes out. Um Yeah, I, I don't yeah. know. I think that's an interpretation. I think there is a version of this where Alistair is genuinely trying to like destabilize the power structures here. Um and, and I think the evidence for that is that he does he is going to expend a lot of power just to fuck with yeah. your harness. No, that's true. Um, and we'll get to that in a sec. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess the other thing is we did talk about when this deal was proposed, like Penny's angle for the deal was kind of keeping the current power structures. Yeah. Um, so the deal isn't all that because it is very much built around keeping the families that are in power in power and just kind of stopping them from going into all out war. Like it doesn't fix any of the problems like you know how they let goblins be to to terrorize yes. uh, the muggles and stuff like it's uh it's not the perfect deal but it, it does seem like alistair could be being more of a dick so i guess you know he gets the not as big a dick as he could have been award <laughs> yeah and i guess the fact that penny wants to keep the current powers in power explains why she isn't keen on the thorburns joining um mm. I, but i don't know like she seems to react quite strongly to alistair's suggestion that rose and the other thorburns should be a part of the council um yeah yeah and even though she's uh she hasn't kind of realized it but she's uh kind of on team blake now like she's kind of uh <laughs> come around to what blake was uh saying yeah but she also blames blake for the family falling apart um so yeah like i think she hasn't quite uh cracked free of uh the family's influence like she's been defined as being the one who is for the family and she's not, she doesn't quite let go of that in the last hour, which I guess is fair. Yeah, I suppose. Um, <laughs> um, can we touch on this line where Alastair suggests 
What I do know is that something bigger is going on, talking about and hinting towards some kind of final boss, I guess. Um, <laughs> and Portrick says, ah, so they figured it out, which is a very tantalizing way of <laughs> responding to that. I hate this line. I have put way too much thought into this little bit. Like, we get some more details. Like, it's not a practitioner. Um, I- I've poured much too much of my time trying to theorize who or what this is. And I. I love it and I hate it that it's in there. This is I like this is a perfect sort of mystery box that's been put in here right now. I love it. Yeah. Um Alistair continues dropping bombs by revealing that he doesn't he thinks that with the situation as it is, Johannes is basically just gonna idle his way to being the Lord of Jacob's Bell. And Alistair doesn't want to play that. So he basically is going to um postpone dawn extend dawn by 24 <laughs> hours to give them some more time before the night's over and you and you know we really get the sense actually that when this night ends the contest for lordship is done <laughs> yeah i mean this night has already gone for two and a bit arcs uh it kind of sounds like it's gonna go for uh maybe the rest of the story <laughs> just, uh the story's but well, the second half of this story is just blake's very bad night yeah um because I think, I mean, yeah, it was like right at the start of arc 12 that the sun set and, you know, the whole arc of 11 was, was the whole of arc 11 was uh, like the day before that when, you know, the people broke in and the family showed up. Like that was all less than 24 hours ago yeah. when, when Rose confronted her, her family in the house. <laughs> is this, this is still the same night where when the sun went down, the siege on the house started, yes, right? Yeah. So that was the morning of, of that siege yeah, when Rose confronted cool. her family. Cool. Um, so, yeah, basically, this is the night that Alistair has decided needs to keep going. Yeah, I mean, it's gone so well <laughs> so far, right? <laughs> um, this is so reckless. Like, Alistair seems to imply that this is going to cost so much power that he's effectively nerfing the Bahames to be not as beaten as the Duchamps are, but pretty beaten. I think he actually explicitly says that it levels him with the Duchamps. Wow. I- I got the impression that when he says I'm going to spend the power, he means essentially all of it, which like this is like, that's insane. Um, is this worth it? I mean, it feels like it's a overreaction. <laughs> I mean, cause okay. Say it works and then they kill Johannes or something. So what he ends up as the Lord of Jacob's bell with no power left. Uh, cause he spent it all. And I guess no wonder he wants the Duchamps on side and signing yeah. that deal because anyone can fucking take him out. Yeah. Um, I guess he's going to rely on Rose for protection. Yes, which I'm sure will work great. I mean, the last people who relied <laughs> on Rose for protection, she left them to defend the house <laughs> by themselves. Uh, yeah, you know, oh, just rely on your on your Diabolist for protection. That'll set a really good tone for your, for your new lordship. Yeah. Um, something that... Uh, happened to me while I was reading this is basically um I kind of forgot that we were in Portrick's POV and it's not like it doesn't remind you because there's a lot of bits where Portrick is it, obviously manipulating people but I just kind of got sucked into the story and forgot that Portrick is just kind of creepily here watching this which is very <laughs> unsettling um yeah he he kind of sucks you in because he's enjoying this so much and that comes across in in a way that you get sucked into it as well. Um, he's just really fucking scary. Yeah. Yeah. Um, speaking of how scary Podrick is, um, basically Alistair hangs up saying, I'm going to do it, so get some sleep before 
and the night's going to go on for another long time, so good luck. Um, then uh, Podrick visits Joanna for a birthday party. Uh, the real Joanna. Okay, so so this is... Uh, I'm unclear if this sec- last section is taking place that same night yep. or if this is a long time ago. I mean, either way, I'm getting the impression that Joanna has been in this house for a long time. I'm, I'm, I yeah. just there was a, and there was a bit of discussion on our Discord, like, I, and I'm still not sure if this is this last segment is taking place ages ago, or if this is like Podrick going in and visiting her in the current time. As I understand it, this is in the current time, which means that Joanna has been in this house for at least two years. I mean, at least she seems happy. Like they seem to be treating her all right. Yeah, I guess like, at least there's that. It could be worse is basically what I'm saying here. Sure, sure. That's <laughs> fair. It could be worse, Joanna. It could be worse. So don't get all high and mighty. <laughs> I'm just saying, if you tell me Podrick has kidnapped and held someone for two years, I'm assuming worse than this. Yeah. So, like, in the grand scheme of things, I'm not as upset as I could be right now, I guess. Sure. Um. Yeah. So she's been here for two years. Waiting for her 10th birthday party, um, and Portrick so celebrates it is, with her. It is two years, like, because I, I was kind of working off the assumption she was 12, but I went back to try and find where I've pulled that assumption from, and I have no idea. I think uh, I, I saw a comment by Wildbo saying she's said to be at least 12 at the near the start of the story. I don't know where yeah. that comes from, though. <laughs> I, I couldn't find it, but admittedly, it was a fairly brief search. Um, yeah. But yeah, so... Yeah, she's she's getting ready to celebrate her tenth birthday. So the implication seems to be that she's been in here for about two years, which is crazy. Yes, and um, Latita has never been her familiar. He's she's always been Podrick's familiar. <laughs> yeah, well, basically, Podrick has somehow managed to completely impersonate an awoken practitioner. Yep. Um, admittedly, like a young girl whose skills would be limited. But I think he talked about when he stole Mags's name. He did talk about how he might eventually get some of her practice abilities. Mm. Uh, so maybe he's just done that here? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Could be. Like, you know, like I, I get the impression Glamour's one of those things where, you know, the more you push it, the more even the spirits start to let you bend the rules. And that's, you know, that'd be something Paul would be all about, I imagine. Yeah. Um, yeah. So Paul is a monster and should die, I think. That's the <laughs> conclusion to this chapter. Um. Look, I wouldn't be overly upset uh, if that happened. I agree. Um, yeah. So, okay. So, I guess I want to I want to tie this to Blake a bit, mm. and it's interesting because I I actually found this harder in this chapter than I usually do to sort of tie what I think this interlude was talking about to to our main story. Yeah. Um, and I mean maybe that's just because it's hidden behind layers of of uh, waffling that that Podrick's doing. Um, like this is an intentionally uh, kind of cryptic chapter. I don't know if cryptic's the right word. Like it's it's an indirect chapter, yeah. I think, by design. Yeah. Um, because that fits Pordrig. And I guess it's interesting because like Pordrig kind of stands to me as this antithesis of Blake in that uh you know Blake stands out. He's just kind of this reckless direct tool for causing chaos. And then Pordrig is so built around finesse and deception in the way that he he does it I, I don't know it feels weak but like i just i guess i was just comparing the way these two act on the world yeah i i think the other comparison that i i think they're different in is we touched on before how they both kind of 
exude chaos, I suppose. Um, But Blake actually wants things to change, whereas Podrick doesn't want things to change. Podrick wants things to stay as they are, but he just wants to create chaos in that system, right? I don't know if that's quite true. Like, he's a banished fairy. I think he wants to overhaul the court. I think there's a revolutionary aspect to him. It's just he's trying Mm. to make things worse. Yeah, um, I guess. Whereas Blake wants to make them better. (laughs) I don't know. Like, I feel like the system that allows him to be doing all this stuff is the same that lets innocent people be picked on by goblins and stuff like that. Like, it's a system of divided practitioners that if they were more united, you know, Podrick wouldn't get away with half the shit that he does. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. But I I don't know, if if any listeners have have any great ideas on, um, uh, you know, how how Podrick might be comparing to Blake or what this interlude might be saying about Blake's journey of, uh, or not Blake's journey, Blake's descent, this arc, um, yeah, I'd be sure. very interested to hear them. It's not a journey as much as it is a <laughs> series of failings. <laughs> um, yeah. So the big question that this arc begs, Elliot, is who is the big bad boss at the end of uh, of the uh, of the story? Who's the monster who's, at the end of the book? Who's pulling the strings? Um, yeah. I mean, look, I might post a picture in our Discord or something like Ruben could see the notes here. Yes, there's uh, a I'll, lot I'll, of I'll, people. I'll, I'll tweet it. Um, I mean, this this list kind of became a self-referential joke by the end, um, but I kind of just ended up listing everyone I could think of, and I don't have any answers I'm fully happy with. Um, like, Barbatorum, is, it was the first scene that jumped to my mind, but I feel like Pordrew would be more scared if it was a demon. yeah. And um, that, it's the same reason I've written off, like, the lawyers and that sort of thing as well. I feel like Barbatorum, like, he's just, how could he possibly have had that big of an impact? The one well, thing he's thing, done he, is he create also, Blake. That would have to be some pretty, you know, pretty uh, Simurg-level predictions to to create Blake in the exact way that would cause whatever outcome he wants. Yeah, well, no, and I get the impression it's more something that is influencing things as they're happening. Yeah, like Molly was the only other thing that jumped up to me as the force they could be talking about, but that doesn't feel like a reveal. Like you, you know, like where where the way this chapter talks about it, it sets it up as this big reveal as to who's going to be pulling the strings, and it being Molly would just kind of be like, well, yeah, um, she's been influencing the whole town for arcs now. We knew that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously the lawyers were something else I considered, but again, Podrick doesn't feel scared enough. Like, I feel like if you knew the lawyers were, were making moves here, you'd just book it. Um, like, fuck what the queen of the court says, you know, it's it's demon lawyers. I assume everyone would get the fuck out. Yeah. So, I have no idea. Everything else I can think of feels too small or too left field. I have, I have no idea. I'm excited to find out. Okay. All right. Um, like, I mean... My only other good, half good guess would be like conquest or something. Mm, interesting. So I was trying to think of things from Toronto that could come back. Uh, this doesn't feel like Ur. Uh, Ur uh, doesn't feel like a puppeteer. Ur uh, feels like he'd just come in and fuck shit up pretty directly. What about uh, um, Fell's niece? <laughs> of course, she's coming um, back. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I like. Uh, I'll tweet this whole list, but like as you could say, I've kind. I, I feel like I've touched on everything in the book. So either I've completely forgotten something, or I've just completely underestimated something yeah all right well we'll see we'll see um that's the end of this chapter but it's also the end of this arc and so of course at the end of each arc we like to look back and see what uh what happened this arc um and let's start with the arc title execution 
So mm-hmm. I think the uh, obvious answer here is Blake just <laughs> executes a lot of dudes this chapter. <laughs> um, yeah, there's, there's, uh, there's not much subtlety to, to that meaning. Um, I mean, obviously, if you want to extend that, he's executing his plan to execute a bunch of people. Yeah, but so the the so execute is obviously like to carry out something, right? Yeah, um, and the I think the common way that it is heard, or at least in my mind, the thing I strongly associated with is like the execution of a will, right? Um, yeah, yeah. And, and so I'm trying to think about how. Obviously, Granny Rose's will, which is the inciting incident for this entire story, <laughs> could could be being executed here. Um, and I don't, I I can't find anything super tangible. I can't. I mean, I guess the understanding we got from Twelve Dot X, which is where we actually sort of saw her discuss some of this with Alistair, yeah, is uh, and and, and we've heard bits of this from Rose as well. Blake is designed to just fuck everything up as much as possible so Rose can take advantage of it. Yeah. Uh, he's doing that pretty comprehensively. He's going above and beyond, uh, right I here. reckon. Yeah. Uh, like, we obviously, you know, he, he wrecked up Toronto. We still haven't heard what's going on in Toronto. I still assume it's not good. Uh, but he's also, like, you know, he's just taking out the Duchamps effectively single-handedly, um, you know, manipulating Molly into helping him and, and whatever's pulling the strings might have had a part in it too. But he's... He's really thrown a number of spanners into the work. So, it, like, I can kind of see it, you know, he's finally living up to what his original intended purpose was, in a way. Mm. Yeah, okay, I can see that. Um, I, I also, I don't know, this feels like uh, reaching a bit, but, like, another sort of definition of execution is to talk about, like, the technique or, or style to an artistic work, so, like, mm. how, how it was executed. Um, and, you know, something that this arc talked about a lot was the way blake was going around things like his the manner he was executing uh his plan which was you know executing people yeah um, yeah I, I don't know yeah um yeah i mean i think uh, the most obvious read is probably the best one here just the <laughs> the public execution of the Duchamp husbands yeah um let's talk I mean, about you, well you can also execute like you don't you don't just execute wills. You can execute like an order or something. You know, yeah. Order sixty six, um, and obviously we see like some some deals or whatever being made. Like Alistair tries to solidify the uh, you know junior council thing here. I don't know. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's talk about some of the themes of this arc, right? Um, what what are some themes that jumped out to you about this arc, Elliot? Yeah. Um. So I think something this arc really looked into or at least caused us to look into uh was basically you know the summary of our discussion question that we have going on at the moment yeah uh, leave leave your thoughts on the reddit thread uh in the show notes below which is is what blake's doing here okay like yeah uh this this arc really causes us to kind of it, it presents evidence for both sides i would say as to yeah uh whether blake's dextering here is a good thing or not yeah and whether blake is losing the plot or not as well mm. i think um i it i think an arc and a half ago the fact that blake would have mm. murdered what six plus four ten people in the space of an hour and a half two hours whatever maybe a bit more maybe like four or five hours the fact that he's a- achieved a two kill per <laughs> per hour <laughs> ratio over the past you know arc and a half 
it's inconceivable, right? Like it's <laughs> it's genuinely insane. And if you had told me this at the start of arc twelve that this would have happened, it would have been bonkers. But then he just kind of did it, like, and and we didn't even. I mean, we questioned it, of course, but it's like. It seems like it's an okay plan now that we're at the tail end of it. And I'm kind of like, <laughs> well, how did I get to be as okay <laughs> yeah. with this as I am? How how have my own standards lowered so much right alongside Blake's? Yeah, um, yeah I, I, I agree. And, and I mean, I think that's sort of what this arc has been doing is almost sort of saying, hey, Blake's doing some horrible shit. But like, also, here's a bunch of reasons why it's maybe not intrinsically awful. I don't know. Yeah, and then it ends with this interlude to basically say, and it could be worse. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, or or is it saying this is what Blake is in yeah, some fair. way? Maybe. Uh, I, I think something that interesting that evolved over the course of this chapter is we kind of saw really some cracks in Team Blake, um, especially with Evan. I mean, we kind of knew that that would happen once Blake started, you know, capping people, but... Did we... Sorry, did we talk last episode? I, I, I forget if we mentioned it. There was a commenter who commented in a 13.6 thread um, on, on right. Evan and Blake's relationship. I, and... I don't think we mentioned it, but we should bring out this comment. Um, yeah, so so the comment was by Napalm Eagle. Mm. Uh, and Napalm Eagle basically sort of talked about how Evan and Blake's relationship seemed really rocky in that chapter and kind of got back on track. Yes. Uh, after that, um, like I still have serious questions about what he made Evan do. Um, but somebody <laughs> pointed out that was a chapter where they were kind of going up against enchantresses. So yeah. um, the fact that their relationship got so strained for a little bit and then kind of recovered probably suggests that there may have been some uh, some hijinks involved there. And yeah. I really like this theory. I kind of can't believe we didn't <laughs> that didn't yeah. come together it's, before. It seems it like as, as soon as as soon as you sent this comment to me and I read it, I was like. Of course. Yeah, it's so perfect. Um, <laughs> yeah, but I obviously I do think that uh, Blake did, you know, Tinkerbell Evan. <laughs> um, uh, well, I think the thing about Enchantresses, right, is they, they've got to have something to work off of, right? Like, if, Yes, exactly. I feel like the better the relationship is, the less they would have been able to sour it. So I think there was maybe something that they were working off of to, to do this. Yeah, but then we also did see them working quite well as a team. We saw Green Eyes really kind of come into her own a lot in this chapter. Um, I think this was the first, sorry, not chapter, arc, where, uh, I mean, Blake's kind of had a lot of, towards the start of the arc, had a lot of, oh, is it okay that Green Eyes is, like, attacking people, even though I'm doing that? Um, and that really <laughs> faded away over the course of the arc, which made me feel that Blake has gotten a lot closer to Green Eyes, obviously uh, physically and uh, romantically as well. <laughs> uh yeah yeah that's true um so that was just an interesting thing to watch happen this arc i think yeah yeah i agree um i think in the arc where we tackle uh the relationship manipulators we kind of took the two people blake is currently closest with and uh solidified his relationships with them yeah um and that was this arc and that's uh this episode i suppose yes uh, so we mentioned that discussion thread uh, question, which is, should Blake be proud of how he took down the Duchamp family? Not just is it okay, but should Blake be proud of it? I really like how people yes. are taking to this question to heart. Um, and if you <laughs> want to leave your answer to this discussion question, the place to do that is in our discussion threads, which you can find linked in the show notes down below. Especially if your answers are no, because there's a lot of yeses. Yeah, a lot of you guys you... are real okay with husband murder. <laughs> 
Um, yeah, so if, if you've got some uh, cr- contrarian uh, no opinions, uh, you know, make sure to chuck them in the discussion thread. Yep. Um, and if you, if you want to throw them somewhere else, you can hit us up on Twitter at MediaMD Podcast. Uh, we're always available to, you know, post packed memes, apparently, or packed meme <laughs> so far. Hey, we'll get a second one one of these days. If you want to post some more packed memes on r slash worm memes so that I can take them and tweet them, uh, that'd be great. Um, or why not just go straight to the source, go to doofmedia.com and uh, leave a packed meme in a comment there. You can leave comments there, I think. <laughs> so do it. There's a bunch of great shows on the Doof Media Network. Uh, although Not this, this week, week, yeah, this week it's a bit of a quiet week because these uh, Americans get a week off for something called Thanksgiving. I mean, they just—it just seems like they're being lazy. Um, yeah, I think so. You know, Matt, Matt and Scott famously are not hard workers. Yep. Um, I've heard that. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, obviously, I think I think uh, do the right thing is still happening, but uh, yeah, uh, you know, it's a bit of a slow week, but that's fine. Doof Media puts out a lot of order content. I'm sure a lot of us have catching up to do. Yeah, catch up on some shows that you might not have seen in a while or listened to as well. Um, yeah. The the reason that Doof Media has so many shows is because of our delightful patrons who keep this network going and keep encouraging us to do more stuff. So we're going to have to start more shows soon. Um, and if you want to force us to do more stuff, go to patreon.com slash doofmedia and support the network. Yes, and while you're there, don't forget to stop by patreon.com forward slash Wildbo because uh, he's writing all these stories. And, you know, do you want that to stop? No, you don't. And neither do I. <laughs> um, and that's it for this arc and this episode, but we'll be back soon for Cine DA 14.1. So we'll see you then. See you then. See you then.